So thank you again, everyone, for being here this evening. It's been a pretty long time since I last visited your sangha, your community. I was actually there back in 2016, seven years ago now. And a lot's happened for all of us since then, both individually and collectively. Now, of course, I don't know what's happening any, in any of your lives specifically, but I do teach in quite a few different centers of different um, countries around the world. And even though I'm meeting with different people in different countries, it's actually surprising how common our challenges are. And because of that, I thought for tonight's talk, what I'd like to do is revisit a theme that I've been exploring a few times over the course of this year. So as you may know, the title for this talk is Finding Moments of Ease in the Midst of It All. Finding Moments of Ease in the Midst of It All. And there are a few assumptions in that title. So one is that being in the midst of it all is not an experience of ease for many of us. In other words, that ease is something that's in short supply. And I think most of us, most of the time, we are having to navigate the everyday challenges of being alive in this human body. We're having to navigate the daily realities, for example, of maybe work pressure or financial stress or relationship challenges, or health issues, or family problems. So all of us have got stuff going on a lot of the time. And then on top of all that, we've got the broader societal and global problems that are combining to create what's being called a polycrisis. So the continuing effects of COVID and the intensifying social injustice the political polarization and the rapidly intensifying climate crisis. There's a lot. So my basic assumption is that many people right now are not experiencing an abundance of ease. And I always like to check. So I like to check. Is that true for you to some extent? You know, is there someone here who's just consistently abiding in ease from the minute you wake up all the way through the day until you go to sleep at night? And if there is, please raise your hand. So I'm not seeing anybody. And I'm guessing this is a self-selected group because possibly if you were abiding in ease, you wouldn't find any need to come onto the call. So just highlighting that based you know, on my own life experience and the people I meet with in various sanghas around the world, there's a lot going on for many of us. And that's why in the title of the talk, I talk about finding moments of ease. And I like to highlight moments of ease just because so many of us tend to bring an unrealistic, maybe even idealistic attitude to our Dharma practice. Many of us believe sometimes unconsciously that no matter what is going on in our lives, if we were good meditators or good practitioners, Somehow we should be able to just flow with it all and rest in perfect equanimity. And if we can't do that, if we find ourselves getting reactive or exhausted or depressed, very common to fall into self-judgment, blame ourselves for not being good enough, or maybe blame the practice for not working. I'll say more about that kind of conditioning later in the talk. 
So now what I'd like to do is just explore this problem, what I'm calling non-ease or unease or dis-ease in a little bit more detail. And I'm going to be using a template that I think most of you are probably familiar with, the Buddha's teachings on the Four Noble Truths. So as you might know, the Buddha borrowed this template from the medical healers of his day. So the medical healers of that time apparently had a four-part approach to working with illness. And we know the Buddha wasn't so much healing physical disease. You could say he was working with existential dis-ease or unease. Nevertheless, this four-part template is useful. So the first step in that model is to identify the problem. The problem being the dis-ease, the suffering, the dukkha. So in terms of this talk, it's the dukkha of not being at ease. It often shows up as feeling busy or pressured or burdened or overwhelmed, having too much to do, not enough time to do it in, not enough support. Pretty common. And I think most of us understand or know very directly this experience of non-ease, at least in times. So the second stage is to work out what is the cause of this non-ease. And there's a couple of levels that I'd like to explore here. One is our personal contributions to that feeling of being overwhelmed. There are aspects of our personality and our individual conditioning that tend to contribute to it. So some of us have the tendency to try to do way too much, maybe driven by fear of missing out, the well-known FOMO, or maybe driven by wanting to feel needed or important or necessary. So it's very common to cram our calendars full and be racing from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next without a break. And Although each one of those things in itself might be worthy, the sheer volume of them starts to become stressful. That's one very common form of conditioning. Another is that tendency for some people to be always wanting to help others. That tendency to get over-involved, to take on too much, to step forward too often. And that tends to end up costing us too. Difficulty in setting boundaries. Some other people, they're driven by fear of what they might discover if they stopped even for a moment and had to experience any of the underlying emotions that they may be trying to avoid through overwork and constant busyness. So I'm just naming a few pretty common patterns that often drive this sense of unease. Even if those particular patterns don't sound familiar, It's worth investigating to see, are there some others? Maybe explore with a Dharma friend. See if you can get clearer about perhaps your own personal or family, individual conditioning that might be driving this sense of unease. Then there's a second level that's often underneath or around the individual patterning, and that's our more collective or societal conditioning. And living in predominantly capitalist societies, those societies tend to reward productivity above all else. And there tend to be dominant values of being competitive, very highly individualistic. 
And those values tend to reinforce our disconnection from each other and tend to reinforce our disconnection from the natural world that we're part of. And so there can be a drive to override the truth that we are natural organisms. We're mammals. We're flesh and blood beings. And we have sensitive human bodies, sensitive human hearts, sensitive human minds. We're not actually machines or robots that we should be able to just keep performing the next task, next, 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 without any rest. And when we lose that connection with our true nature, we tend to punish ourselves with these unrealistic expectations of what we should be able to do and what we should be able to get and what we should be able to achieve. And so it's no wonder that so many of us are struggling with anxiety, with burnout, with overwhelm. So now we have some sense of some of the causes of this unease or dis-ease. We can bring in the lens of the third noble truth, which acknowledges that freedom from suffering, from dukkha, is possible. So in the frame of reference of this talk, ease is possible. At least moments of ease are possible, no matter what is going on in our lives. And just to be clear, the ease that I'm talking about here isn't just the ease of, say, blobbing out on the couch or binge-watching TV series or the ease or even of being on vacation in a resort somewhere. Those things, of course, they might provide temporary relief, but when the TV show is over or when the vacation ends, we're just right back where we started. Instead, what we're aiming for here is an inner ease a heart quality of spaciousness, of flow, acceptance, of resilience. And it's that that helps us to maintain some degree of steadiness, no matter what life is bringing us. And these qualities of spaciousness and flow and acceptance and resilience, they're all aspects of what the Buddha referred to as equanimity, balance, steadiness of heart and mind, peace, which is in a way, what all of his teachings and all of these practices are aiming towards. So, given that ease is possible, how do we find it? This question brings in the fourth noble truth. And the fourth noble truth invites us to set up the conditions that support more ease. The noble eightfold path, different factors that strengthen our capacity to find ease. Now, obviously, it's not enough just to wish that we weren't so busy or stressed or exhausted. Most of us do need to make changes that will help us to release that unease. So the first step in that whole process is one I've already touched into. That's getting clearer about what are we doing to ourselves. And we do that by bringing mindfulness to our patterns of behavior our habits of acting and reacting, but also bringing mindfulness on a more moment-to-moment level so that we can start to recognize the building up of tension and stress and distress throughout the day with the purpose of de-escalating that build-up before it gets too intense. So in my own life, I experience this uh, stress as having a kind of momentum to it. It's like an insidious pressure that keeps building through the day, pushing me to go faster and faster and faster 
unless I have enough mindfulness to keep putting the brakes on it metaphorically. So I think of this process, to use another metaphor, as being like putting speed bumps in that road. So as you know, speed bumps, those raised bumps, usually in suburban streets that are supposed to slow the traffic. In a way, that's what I'm trying to do with that inner pressure that keeps pushing me to speed up. So I use mindfulness as a tool to help keep de-escalating, calming that busyness before it really gets too much momentum. So one of the ways we do this is by having a regular meditation practice, you know, as best we can, at least once, maybe twice a day. That's a very powerful speed bump. It gives us a good foundation to keep cutting through that stress. Now, one of the challenges of when we are feeling overly busy, overly stressed, too much to do, what's one of the first things that tends to fall away for most people? You can probably guess it's meditation practice. So if you find yourself feeling, oh, I'm just too busy, I can't fit it in, I really encourage you to challenge that belief and even to experiment with a statement that I heard a few years ago now. It said, if you're too busy to meditate, meditate more. If you're too busy to meditate, meditate more. There's also apparently a Zen saying where someone said, how long should I sit in meditation? And the teacher supposedly said, you should sit in meditation for 20 minutes a day. Unless you're too busy, then you should sit for an hour. So again, it's just pointing to that tendency to think we don't have time, usually at the times when we most need to be meditating more. Now, a few years ago in my own life, I got caught in one of those phases where I had taken on way too many commitments. And I was drowning. I was desperate. And I remembered these statements that initially it just sounded ridiculous to me. Now, at that point, I was already sitting twice a day, but I decided to experiment with sitting again in the middle of the day. And to my amazement, the first time I tried it, I actually managed to get everything I needed to do done that afternoon. Now, the second day, I had an even bigger list of things that I needed attention and part of me thought, no, this is ridiculous. You don't have time. You, you've got this, 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 this to do. And I pushed myself to override that. I sat for that third time in the middle of the day. And again, everything got done. And I couldn't quite believe it. So I did the same thing every day for a week. And every single time, I found that in spite of this belief that there wasn't enough time, I was able to sit and still do the things that needed doing. And even in the face of that um, evidence, I still every time had to convince myself that it was worth doing. So I encourage you just to experiment in your own practice. If you're finding that you're really busy, can you sneak in another meditation as a speed bump to help start down-regulating, calming the nervous system? It doesn't have to be 30 or 45 minutes, even 10 minutes. Maybe three times a day, morning, noon, and evening. Anything that builds in those speed bumps is usually pretty helpful. 
Now, just to acknowledge, too, one of the challenges of trying to meditate when we are super busy and stressed is that often that meditation doesn't give us the break that we're hoping for. And many of us have pretty unrealistic expectations. We tend to think we should be able to live our lives at sort of warp speed, super busy, involved in this and that and the other, multitasking like crazy, then sit down to meditate and boom. And the mind just magically stops thinking, we stop worrying, we stop planning, and we should be able to sit there in deep samadhi, deep ease and peace for the entire time. And if that doesn't happen, if we're sitting tormented by all that agitation of busyness, we think that, oh, it's a waste of time, or meditation isn't working, or why even bother? Now, it's true that It's not easy to sit still when the mind is racing. But instead of assessing the value of the meditation by how much ease and peace we get, it's often much more useful to recognize what are the other skillful states that are being developed there. If the conditions aren't supporting us to drop into ease and peace, look instead at what else is being strengthened there. Patience, for example, persistence, determination, steadiness, courage, kindness, compassion, self-compassion, and so on. And so I often encourage people at the end of a meditation practice just to jot down a couple of lines, a couple of notes about the benefits that came from that practice. There may not be the deepest stillness and calm and peace, But for sure, plenty of other beneficial qualities would have got strengthened just from that willingness to sit and be with your experience. So writing down, making notes about what you experienced can help set up a positive feedback loop and can give you some encouragement that it is actually making a difference, even if sitting with business isn't so easy or pleasant. And it's very important to keep orienting to what's going well, perhaps because especially in the midst of a hectic life, our perfectionistic tendencies can tend to turn our meditation into a duty and a chore and just one more thing to try and check off of our to-do lists and then to feel guilty if that doesn't happen. So like we did in the meditation just before, I often encourage people to try to notice what can they enjoy about the practice. So even tiny moments that have some quality of pleasantness to them. Again, as I invited in the meditation, just the feeling of being supported by the cushion, the chair. As you're sitting here now, can you feel that sense of ease in the body? What's it like just to fully notice an out-breath and feel the natural relaxing and softening as you breathe out? So in the meditation, taking time just to tune in to those subtly pleasant experiences, again, can help to orient to a little more ease and calm. Okay, so maintaining a regular meditation practice is a really good foundation for helping to find moments of ease in the rest of the day, too. A second place that can be very powerful to bring awareness to is in the transitions, the transitions between tasks or events 
transitions that all of us are going through multiple times a day. Now, again, our dominant mainstream conditioning generally doesn't recognize transitions on any scale, big or small. We're almost programmed to just keep doing, 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 going to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. But again, that goes against our organic nature. Just like in everything else in nature, there are rhythms and cycles of action and rest. And if we keep overriding those rhythms, we tend to accumulate more and more stress until we eventually burn out or break down. So to try to mitigate that in the context of an ordinary day, I'm trying to bring more awareness to consciously completing one task or one action. And then take a moment to pause, to just take a breath or two, to acknowledge what I've just finished doing, what's just ended, before I move on to the next thing. So, for example, when I finish a meeting on Zoom, in the old days, I would just click the leave meeting button and then go immediately to my email inbox or jump up to make a cup of tea. But now at the end of a meeting, I tend to try to click the leave meeting button. Sometimes I just close my laptop and I just sit and I acknowledge, kind of metaphorically say goodbye to the meeting that's just ended. Take a moment to let the words subside and the presence of the people fade away. And then after a breath or two, I might turn my attention to what's next. Now, in some ways, this is similar to a practice I learned about in the Zen chaplaincy training foundation year that I did a few years ago. And the trainers were talking about being hospital chaplains. And in the hospital, they're going from room to room to room to room, just talking to patients one after another. And one of them said that with each new patient, he would stand outside the door. And in the hospital, you have to sanitize your hands before you go into the room. And he would take that time while he was sanitizing his hands just to consciously clear his heart and mind. And then he would consciously cross the threshold into the new patient's room, as empty as he could be of whatever had happened just before. So that then he could meet the next person more fully because there was that conscious transition and he was more refreshed. So I felt quite inspired by that, just that honoring and respecting of each patient. And I try to do something similar when I'm going from a phone call or meeting with students online or even starting to make dinner, just out of respect, honoring that transition from work to, okay, now I'm preparing food. And it does seem to bring a little more ease to try to fully complete one task before starting the next. Now, again, this is pretty counter to our multitasking culture. And it's yet another way that modern life is not so healthy for our hearts and minds. A few years ago, I read research that apparently every time the brain switches its attention to something new, a small dose of cortisol gets released to help us focus on that new thing. Now, cortisol is a stress hormone. So when we're constantly jumping from website to website or task to task, we're actually microdosing ourselves with stress hormones. So it's no wonder that we feel frazzled at the end of the day. So again, just taking one or two breaths between each thing we do that can help to offset that buildup of stress hormones. 
And we can think of these as kind of micro pauses that we try to insert throughout the day. So we have micro pauses. And it's also helpful to look out for bigger opportunities to really rest and to refresh ourselves, to renew ourselves. So I've also started a practice called doing nothing. Now, that sounds pretty simple, but it's also pretty radical. And again, it goes against some of our deepest societal conditioning. Again, that constant drive to be productive. And for some people, the need, it almost feels like we have to justify our very existence by being constantly productive. And if we aren't constantly producing and doing and achieving, we have no right to be alive. So it's an act of rebellion, almost, to resist that tyranny of constant productivity and train ourselves just for a few moments at a time to practice simply being instead of doing. So a friend of mine recently put me onto a website of an activist in the U.S. called Trish Hersey. I don't know if any of you know her. She established an organization called the NAP Ministry, Ministry of NAP, and she calls herself the Bishop of NAP. And so she wrote a manifesto called Rest is Resistance, which is in a way similar to what I'm saying here. And it, this says it's a call to action and a manifesto for those who are sleep deprived, searching for justice and longing to be liberated from the oppressive grip of grind culture. And for me, just that term grind culture, it woke something up. It revealed some deep conditioning that I hadn't been aware I was carrying. And I started to wonder what would happen if I just took five minutes every day to literally do nothing at all. So I wonder, perhaps some of you now might be have that same question, and perhaps some of you might be noticing some kind of resistance, even to the idea of doing nothing from time to time. Often people say they, they hear themselves saying, it's what a waste of time. What good is that going to do? That's just totally self-indulgent. She's trying to turn us all into couch potatoes. Well, for some people, it's, but what if I liked it too much? For other people, I don't deserve to rest. Too many people depend on me. I can't give up on them. They couldn't cope. I have to keep going. So just that invitation to do nothing for five minutes, it's usually an opportunity to see all of that conditioning that tends to keep us driven. So just imagine as an exercise that I did ask you now, we won't actually do it, but imagine if I asked you to take five minutes away from the screen and to either rest or do something soothing for five whole minutes. You might, as a thought experiment, exact, imagine what you might do. I'll just give you a moment of silence to sense into that. What could you do right now if you had five minutes? to do nothing, to just be.
So in previous talks, some people said they would just go outside and look at the night sky, just lie down and stare at the stars. Someone else said they would sit with their cat on their lap and just feel the cat purring. Somebody else said they would give their partner a long hug. Somebody else had a cup of tea and they just spent five minutes watching the steam swirl off the tea. So there are so many simple things that can help us to bring these moments of ease. And I'm just offering a few suggestions now of ways you might build more moments of ease into your everyday life. So that when the bigger challenges come, we have a little more resilience, a little more resources, more capacity to deal with the bigger challenges too, which I'll have to save for another talk. So I'd like to actually finish here now and just so we have plenty of time to hear any reflections, any questions, any strategies you might have in your own life about how you try to find ease in the midst of it all. So thank you for your attention. I'll leave it there for now.